Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. And welcome to The Thinking Practitioner, where Books of Discovery has been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach whether textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here, and they see that same spirit here on The Thinking Practitioner podcast. They're proud to sponsor our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioner listeners save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. And we have a very special guest today, the return visit of Dr. Stu McGill, Stuart McGill. Dr. McGill, you are a distinguished professor emeritus, the University of Waterloo, where you were a professor for 30 years. You have researched uh, issues related to mechanisms of back pain, how to rehabilitate back pain people and enhance both injury resilience and performance. You work with high performance professionals and patients from all over the world who seek out your help for musculoskeletal back pain issues. I happen to know that people who could do anybody, see anybody, afford anything, choose you often as not to work with their own back pain on. You have produced over 245 peer-reviewed scientific journal papers, several textbooks, uh, and many many international awards, including the Order of Canada in 2020 for leadership in the back pain area. You were the author of Low Back Pain Disorders and The Back Mechanic, which is the one I really want to underline for our listeners, Back Mechanic. And you continue as the Chief Scientific Officer for BackFit Pro. Welcome. Uh, well, thank you very much, Till, and uh, good day to you, uh, Whitney. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe you're uh, Pacific time or mountain time? Yeah, Pacific time for me and mountain for Till. So, One okay, of each. so two and three hours behind. Yeah. You're, you're going to be getting hungry. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. So, well, we want to thank you again so much for taking some time out to uh, hang out with us uh, here again today. We, I have to tell you, we had so much wonderful feedback from the previous episode that we did, and uh, I have to say myself personally, I went back and listened to it multiple times too, just to try to see what more pearls and, and great things that I could uh, to pull out of there. So we want to kind of take uh, take off from where we we left off last time and, and dive deeper into a few other issues uh, here as well today. So um, thank you again for for your generous time of joining us here here today. Um, the first well, thing I want to say, I will say it's my pleasure and. Right. Uh, I, I really enjoyed having dinner together in Montreal. Mm-hmm. It was uh, that's the the fun of what we do to meet new colleagues and share a few ideas and have a beer and a laugh. Yeah, absolutely. All right. This was at the Fascial Research Congress, and we were lucky enough to be seated at your table and had some great time to get to know you better and get to know your work better. So that was an honor. Yeah. Yeah. Same here. Yeah. So where I wanted to start off today is. Um, just looking at, we have a variety of questions and things that we wanted to dive into. So one of the questions I wanted to start off with are, what might be some common misconceptions about back pain and spine health that some of our audience, in particular manual therapists, should be aware of? Well, that's a very broad question. I would have to say uh, 
In terms of a misconception and rather an impediment as well, is using this diagnosis nonspecific low back pain. Mm -hmm. I don't believe that it exists. I think with a thorough assessment, and I believe the science shows this in spades, that uh, if the assessment is thorough enough and competent enough, it will reveal uh, some of the cause pathways of the pain. The clinician can, apply, can apply some antidotes or some treatment in that they themselves will become uh, part of an understanding uh, of the uh, pain pathway. So it becomes very specific. Mm -hmm. uh, and the last part of that is if you were to read a paper in the literature on nonspecific back pain, then they might compare uh, a manual therapy with chiropractic, with exercise or whatever. The results are never very impressive. And the, the reason I believe is the groups are non-homogeneous. While it's a statistical uh, precondition of, of, of validity, actually, that the groups are homogeneous. So if you have someone with uh, pain that is caused by too much motion, and the next person is caused by a pathway that uh, they don't have enough mobility, and you do uh, some kind of an intervention, some will get better, some get worse. On average, there's no effect, and that's the conclusion of the paper. However, if the scientists or the, the people conducting the study got past nonspecific low back pain, they would see that if they categorize those who thrived on mobility and were given mobility as the intervention, now they see the efficacy. Those who are uh, having too much motion and needing more stiffness or stability and control, and if they were given that intervention, the efficacy would go, go way up. So without studying the full spectrum of uh, uh, variation, oh, pardon me, then uh, uh, staying with this idea of nonspecific low back pain is a real uh, impediment. So that, that would be the answer uh, mm -hmm. from me on that issue. That's a great answer because you're saying that because the studies have such a mixed group that they're pulling from and they're averaging the results, it's hard to tell which modalities, which approaches might be effective, which might not be. And you're saying that if we really took the time, uh, and you have some amazing stories about taking time to really understand people's back pain, we could be a lot more specific as practitioners. No question. And that goes not only for back pain, but just about every other uh, search mission where statistics are used. Okay. Yeah. Now, this is the, a question that's in danger of asking you to reduce your life's work to one or two sentences. That said, where, how would you guide our manual therapy audience toward that discriminatory process in their intake? People with the background, say, in massage therapy, body work, structural integration. I, I well, would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have some validity in the answer that I'm going to give you in that uh, it's very difficult for me to find clinicians who understand the breadth of mechanisms that cause back pain. 
so I find we have to educate them uh, ourselves because if you came from a manual therapy background or an orthopedic surgery background or a neurology background, you wouldn't have the other bits. So when we uh, put together an education package and then that person becomes uh, familiar with our approaches, uh, they are able to conduct a thorough enough assessment that leads them to the specific subcategory of their back pain, and that gives them a guidance on what the intervention should be. So it's a little bit of education. It's a little bit of taking the time to conduct a thorough assessment, subcategorize the person, and then match the intervention to what uh, is required for that particular pain pathway, whatever it may be. Yeah, one of the things that I read... That's more than two sentences. Yeah. Uh, to... <laughs> it's always going to be a bit more complex. But one of the things that I read in your book, Low Back Disorders, that's, that's something that I have seen also clinically a lot, and, and just maybe this is kind of a follow-up to, to what we were mentioning here, because I certainly I think that there's been a... a a proliferation of this where certain individuals, um, if they can't find an easier explanation for what's going on, they, I think you said something like they default to something like um, psychosocial issues or some other kind of thing as a general broad sort of wastebasket. Well, let's just put it in here because I can't figure out what's going on with it there. Is that, um, I see that as, you know, uh, frequently an impediment to, to a more detailed evaluation, what really is happening with them. I finished a patient half an hour ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he had quite involved pain pathways. He had a uh, disc replacement in his neck and he had two disc bulges in his lumbar spine. It turned out he had a double pinch point on the uh, spinal cord and uh, nerve roots and there was a nerve friction. Um, no one had the ability that he had seen thus far to diagnose the pain. Uh, I got him to lay prone and he had the terrible pins and needles, hot and cold in his feet. And then face down, I said, turn your head so you're resting your left cheekbone on the table. And I got his wife to pull his arm up like this. And he, he started to cry and he said, well, my symptoms are gone. And I said, yes, you've got an underhook with neural friction. It was precise as that. And I knew that if we could pull the brachial plexus off the uh, underhook, uh, we had a chance to move the pain. So it wasn't uh, uh, um, uh, unknown. So to answer your question, you know, he had seen a dozen different clinicians. He'd been sent to the pain clinic and they concluded in the end that he had psychosocial disorders. He was a pain magnifier mm -hmm. and it broke the man down psychologically. Yeah. His psychosocial diagnosis, he, he said, I must be crazy because I know after I got my neck surgery, this is when the uh, symptoms in my feet started and the docs say, well, there's nothing wrong with the nerve roots going to your feet. They'd done EMG studies and all the rest of it. And they just threw, I'll, I'll just say this, and I'm going to get in trouble for it, incompetence mm -hmm. that they defaulted and blamed the poor man of having psychosocial disorders. 
he had psychosocial disorders because of their inability to tell him what was causing their pain and address it. Yeah. So sorry, that's going to irritate a few people, but that's that's well, the that's way. the reality. I mean, I I'm in 100% agreement with you. I've seen that kind of process happen over and over again. It just um, you know, and uh, I think where a lot of us are trying to just chip away at that idea of like we need to do a better job of educating the clinicians to be more accurate and effective at, at finding those things because uh, there's a lot of people really in dire need of of more specifics around that. I am. When- I, if sorry, uh, Till, I was just Go going ahead, to yeah. say when a clinician reaches the end and uh, they they tell me, you know, I, I can't find the pain. Uh, I think this this person is, uh, you know, they have some psychological component. No doubt they do have a psychological component, but. Um, yeah, no, I've lost my my line of logic there that I was building for you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. You were yeah. saying that there's a there may be a psychological component, but is it is it cause or is it effect? Is it uh, is it the result of the pain they're in, or is it the thing that's causing it? Yeah, well, of course it could be. It could be either. But this yeah. idea to default. Oh, I know what I was going to say. It just came back to me now, uh, and I'll say if you can't find their pain, you missed something. You better go back and look again. And can you probe with your hands, see with your eyes, Mm. and get the pain to move? Can you increase it? Can you decrease it? Can you get it to change locations? And if you can, uh, you've just proved that there is some mechanical component to this. But again, no doubt there's some psychological uh, uh, issue. Pain is... uh, an awful thing for the, uh, you know, the brain to reconcile and mm-hmm. all the rest of it. Yeah. You, you have been a proponent of a biomechanical emphasis and what you just described is a really practical way to assess the pain and see, can we change it? Can we get it to move? Including maybe can we, uh, well, no, that's not, I was going to say, can we make it worse? Uh, Sometimes when we use our hands and we find that we can actually make it worse, at least I'm thinking, okay, so there is something mechanical here that's affecting it. Now can I shift and I turn that around so that I can hopefully make it better like we all want? Well, what a fabulous assessment. Mm -hmm. You just proved what causes pain. And if you understand what you did with your hands, you might have... Say you 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 did a a shear test. You probed one vertebra and you uh, triggered the pain. Now give an antidote. Okay, well if that probe uh, is moving something, let's stop the movement with some stabilizing stiffening strategy. If it's in the lumbar spine, we might try an abdominal brace, or we might try and centrate by pulling down with the pecs and lats. Or here's an interesting one for you. And we did this this morning with this patient I was describing with the disc replacement. And uh, he, 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 he had this demeanor as he, was, as he stood up. And he said, yeah, my feet are tingling. And I said, could you retract your neck? And he retracted his neck and he said, oh, my right toe just went on fire. And I said, humor me now. And I watched the mechanics and I said, open and close your jaw. But before you do that, 
retract the chin and push your tongue hard to the roof of the mouth. So now I've created a kinematic pattern plus a kinetic pattern of stiffness with the deep flexors pushing the tongue hard and don't let it go. Open and close it. Now, retract the chin, push your tongue hard to the roof of the mouth and just teach your, just touch your teeth lightly together. So now I've added some posture, some gliding to the joint with an appropriate stiffening, controlling field. Pain was gone in an instant. So there was the experiment. Uh, we created the pain. We made a couple of observations and we formed a hypothesis. We tested the hypothesis with the antidote. What a beautiful process of assessment. I'm torn here because I wanted to ask about inflammation next, but you just brought up a really important point, which is stiffness, where you're actually creating a stiffen stiffening uh, experiment to see if that changes the uh, pain. What's the next logical thing to talk about there? So you can you say more about the role of stiffness? You just told a story where you had someone pressing the roof of their mouth, doing various things that created a kinematic stiffness through their body. A lot of uh, manual therapists don't think about stiffness, except as something to eliminate, something to soften up. So there's a potential paradigm clash there, at least at the superficial level between the goals of a lot of manual therapies and say massage. How would you help us with that? How would you, what would you say about what you're saying compared to this superficial thought that we're reducing stiffness in our work? Oh, that's interesting. You used the word paradigm clash. Yes. Uh, well, that now takes my brain to a line of logic. Uh, I don't know if I see a clash till. Okay. Um, if a, well, let me start out this way. If you were to take your car to a car shop and you said, my car has nonspecific sickness, it's not functioning well. And one guy in the car shop was a welder and another guy was a carburetor guy, or maybe uh, these days it would be fuel injection. Okay, so the fuel injection guy gets the car and does something on the fuel injection and the welder does something with welding and then gives you your car back because it had a nonspecific disorder. What's the outcome? It's not very good. So when a person with nonspecific back pain sees a clinician, and the clinician has the tools of, let's say, manual therapy with the philosophy of loosening things that are a bit stiff. Let's say. If the person has pain because of something being stiff, the outcome is probably going to be pretty good. But right. let's say they already have joint instability, uh, adding more looseness or uh, taking away some stiffness will increase pain. And I can give you probably 10 off the top of my head um, such uh, scenarios. In fact, I just gave you one this morning where we added stiffness by pushing the tongue or I might have someone prone on a table and they say, oh yeah, my right toe is on fire. Good, push your eyebrow. Oh, my pain just went away. We just added anterior chain uh, stiffness or you know, we we met at the uh, fascia uh, congress. I, I think of the number of patients where 
Um, I had a fellow a couple of weeks ago with the weirdest pain. Again, he was accused and defaulted of having psychosocial disorders. His pain was that when he uh, opened up his hip joint, he thought, he well, he really had facilitated psoas muscles because of back and hip pain. And as he stood up, it took him a while to straighten out. And then when he straightened out, his rectus abdominis went into spasm. Now, I don't think that's a psychosocial sign, but nonetheless, he was told that he was a pain magnifier and he was crazy. And this was driving him nuts. As it turned out, when we opened up his hip and performed some sort of a hip stretch, yes, the symptoms uh, fired right off. I laid him on a table and uh, I pulled, uh, I opened up the hip joint and I pulled on one arm and then we did this in Montreal. You'll remember we pushed the heel of the hand to the ceiling. Tom Meyer was there. So that was why I, I thought of this. And then you internally and externally rotate the hand and shoulder, add even more tension through the fascia. Wouldn't you know that that triggered up the rectus symptom and that took it away? Uh, he didn't have anything close to a psychosocial disorder. There was something in his fascial train connecting the arm through the uh, frontal line into the psoas. And uh, it was as plain as day what triggered and what took the, uh, the pain away. And then I just put him on his back and then did this with his wrist that fired off his uh, symptom. Where did the, this begin? He was with a chiropractor in 2018. So that's almost five years ago. And he said he had mild symptoms up to that, but he went to this chiropractor and the chiropractor did two very small, comfortable manipulations. And then completely surprising him, the chiropractor, and as he described it, uh, brought his knee and his heel way up in the air. And it was at that instant, something popped in his back and he'd been very disabled ever since. When, and I'd like your opinion now, both of you, when you see a patient with a very fascially linked symptom, as I've just described, he was described as being bizarre that you do this with your hand and it fires off the rectus abdominis. How often those have been the result of something traumatic, physically traumatic and emotionally traumatic. Now think of the people who've been in car wrecks and the person beside them has died or something along those lines. And now they've been labeled as having this bizarre but no question about it in the assessment, factually linked uh, symptom. Do, do you have any recollections of patients where there was something at the time where all of this began that was traumatic? Yeah, yeah I would say we, we see that kind of stuff, you know, a good bit. And, and what's interesting, and this, this kind of relates to something you were saying earlier too, is that a lot of times this doesn't happen or doesn't come up until somebody really starts digging into the history and really starts probing for those things. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, there's there's another thing that happened, but I'm sure that's not related. Like, oh, yeah, it probably is. And so there's, uh, I think I've seen that, you know, quite a number of times where 
things just never came up. And again, if you have other health professionals who are only taking six minutes to do an interview with somebody, there's no way they're going to catch that stuff anyway. Right. So <laughs> the, what you're bringing up is uh, something that's been close to my heart for a long time. And that is you have to spend the time with someone and just let them talk and tell their story. And they will so often reveal these sorts of historical things that as a clinician, you start doing pattern recognition. And then the patterns get stronger and stronger as you become a more uh, experienced clinician. And uh, after a while, it teaches you to ask about these sorts of things when you see certain patterns of, uh, of uh, shall we say, pathology uh, during an assessment. But, uh, you know, so often these, these uh, fascial and fibromyalgic syn syndromes and whatnot come back to a traumatic event where there truly is some neural uh, rewiring, now we can get back to a uh, soft tissue guru who understands now that it isn't all about stretching and mobilizing. Um, now, I haven't worked with either of you two, but I have worked with Anne Frederick and how much time she will spend, she calls it romancing the joints, romancing the fascia around it and the tissues. And uh, she actually worked on me probably 15 years ago. Uh, but, but how, how uh, important the understanding of all of this and adding a layer of expertise to the soft tissue therapy. Anyway, that was a ramble and I'm sorry about that, but uh, that might stimulate something on your side. Yeah, I want to just real quick sort of call back to a second from what Tilla was asking about the sniff stiffness thing, because I want to just curious if if you think this is mainly about just the skill on the clinician to make, or is there some kind of pearl or easy thing that you can maybe uh, point us to? Like, how does a clinician make that distinction about do I need to increase stiffness or do I need to decrease stiffness in a tissue? Or is that just going to be a matter of like, they have to have a lot broader understanding of the whole biomechanical complexity of what might be doing that. Well, all of that. You need yeah. the understanding of function uh, mechanically, neurologically, physiologically, and you probe it uh, in the assessment. So say you do a, do a, uh, a prone instability uh, uh, test. So you might have someone prone on the uh, table and you will probe L5, L4, I'll come around this way, L3. And let's say L3 is a doorbell. It triggers the symptom to the great uh, uh, toe. Well, that, that's a fifth lumbar root, but the doorbell is, is on the third. And then you might say, squeeze your buttocks and raise your legs. And you hit it again and say, oh, that's worse, that's worse. Okay, we've moved the pain squeeze harder, elevate your legs a little bit higher. Oh, the pain is gone, doc, you're magical. Well, no, it isn't. We changed the stiffness of the joint. So um, if you look at this particular model, these are made by dynamic disc designs, which are about the most biofidelic models of different pathologies going. This joint is normal. This one is normal. This is not. So do you see if I just create a general twisting torque, 
the majority of the motion is at the joint that has lost stiffness. So you see, you don't want to mobilize that joint anymore. You may want to uh, stiffen it. So just for our listeners, we are seeing Dr. McGill's model there where one of the joints is twisting quite a bit more than the others. Yeah, this one. Just observe that one. Now go back to the facet joints at that level. Uh, These facets are not moving much, nor are these, but these ones are painted red. And when you do an assessment, you will find that those are the the triggers. Please don't mobilize them anymore. give them stiffening exercises plus a set of movement patterns that when you bend over just don't bend over and touch your toes but if you added control through uh, the abdominals and bend from the hips uh, pain might be gone and then they'll say oh well you can't live life like that and I say well really did you watch the UFC on Saturday you know the fellow doing that jujitsu move he was a fellow I worked with and showed him that to give him that capacity to eventually do that. Yeah. So I don't need to hear that, uh, oh, they're going to be stiff old men. It's a progression. And mm-hmm. once you reestablish the uh, the control, then uh, all right, we can uh, have discussions about uh, adding function, if you want to call it that, back to the joint. But anyway, I, I don't know if that is getting closer to the discussion that you wanted, Whitney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, ahead, just, John. yeah, we do, just for our listeners, we do have video of this demonstration that Dr. McGillis has given us. You can go check that out on our website or on YouTube to see the joints he was pointing to and to see the movements that were happening there. Now, back to... I mean, here's an example, uh, not to interrupt. The final studies I did uh, just before I retired was a whiplash study. And uh, I did it with a chiropractor who had a dynamic video fluoroscopy, so a real-time moving x-ray machine. All of these patients had been whiplashed one to two years prior to the study. Every single one of them was told they had psychosocial disorders because pain doesn't last longer than a year, at least mechanical pain doesn't. It would have healed by then, therefore they are you know, magnifying their symptoms. And, uh, but obviously the insurance company was uh, uh, not too uh, happy about this. But anyway, every single one of those patients was told by the medical community that their MRI images were fine. There was no physical reason for them to have uh, symptoms. And on an MR, it's a static picture. Great. It's like looking at your telephone and then saying, oh, well, is it ringing? Well, <laughs> you have to have a dynamic uh, uh, detector to know if it's ringing or not. But anyway, we then had them, uh, we, we viewed the sagittal plane in their necks and they just went through the range of motion. And interestingly, the pain wasn't at the end range because at the end range, the joints stiffen up and they control motion. But as the person worked through the flexion and extension movement cycle, somewhere in the mid-range, we saw this on the video fluoroscopy. If you can just watch my my fists being the two vertebra, they rotated, rotated, and then clumped. And then we're going to try to describe this verbally too. So the two we're going to try to describe this verbally too for the listeners that just have audio. But we have the the vertebrae rocking against each other, and then one shears forward off of the other, the clunk. It's a clunk, and it's somewhere in the mid-range. That correlated 100% with the shot of pain and the symptoms that the person was saying, this is disabling. 
Yeah. It could only be seen in a video fluoroscopy. And obviously now you couldn't deny that these people had through mechanical neck pain, through tissue disruption, lasting tissue disruption because of the insult of whiplash. Mm-hmm. So it was yeah. a loss of stiffness. And if they, uh, we, we did try some of the drills that I mentioned earlier about uh, working on the flexor motor control patterns of the neck by pushing the tongue and retracting and, and uh, these sorts of things. Uh, does it work on every patient? No, there's nuances of of how you might coach that. But uh, anyway, there's a, a little bit of a thought on losing stiffness and how uh, probably the most simple example would be a drawer test for a knee. So a drawer test tests sheer laxity. If you've damaged the ligaments, you will see the translations and probably replicate the pain. So a good uh, knee clinician would work on muscular control patterns to organize out the shear as the person moved. In my uh, uh, education as a rolfer, the one of the most common things that was said about hypermobile joints was, let's mobilize everything else. Let's make sure that the places that aren't moving as much can match the evenness that we want to see through the whole system. Your illustrations there of showing one joint moving quite a bit could suggest that, but it's also suggesting there's a limitation to that approach that at some point we may be able to see even more improvement through something that offers stiffness than just mobility everywhere. Is that a fair statement? I've seen it go both ways till the assessment becomes the living experiment to test that hypothesis. But if we think at a more gross level, rather than, you know, it's called adjacent segment syndrome in the spine. Let's think broader than just the adjacent spinal segment. Let's take something like hips and and lumbar spine. Think of the number of people who they now have stiff hips. They sit too much. They don't walk enough. Their hips lose fitness. And now when they bend over, they stress their spine. They bend down to feed the dog. What should have been coming out of the hips is now forced into the spine and they have back pain. Mm -hmm. So if you could go back and address the the, uh, underuse syndrome of the hips, uh, you would free the stresses of the lumbar spine. So that's thinking more in a bigger linkage uh, perspective on the layers of strategic stability and mobility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And your and Whitney, your questions too about how do we, what are the hallmarks for discerning which way to go? Is it just experiment? What you're making me think, Stu, is this, you're doing an elegant process of history taking, noticing uh, clues, what makes it better, what makes it worse, putting together hypotheses in your head. Then you go test them. Can Does the doorbell light up the pain? And then you try to further experiment to see if we can change it from there. So you're describing a, a elegant process of weaving together both the history taking, your hypothesis, and actual pragmatic in the moment testing to mm-hmm. test all those things. So I think we can all learn from that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I must admit that sometimes that is a little bit too much 
for a patient, particularly one who's quite fragile and easily triggered, or they're elderly, or they have some comorbid uh, feature. So now an, an additional layer comes onto this is, can I organize this assessment, this living assessment, and just do the minimum to gain the most information? Because if I have too many tests, I just stir up a hornet's nest and then everything becomes disguised. Yeah. So your idea of the efficiency of the assessment is uh, very important for some people as well. Dr. Miguel, tell us about your thoughts on inflammatory factors. We've been talking about biomechanics. You mentioned even a traumatic event that could trigger it or larger connections that might be mediated through fascia, things like that. But what about direct inflammatory factors like uh, leakage from the nucleus pulposa or overall systemic uh, inflammatory load on back pain complaints. Are there ways, is that a factor? And are there ways to assess or identify when some of those factors might be present? You're out of my wheelhouse of expertise now. So I, uh, when, when I get put into that situation, I have to give the rider, I haven't personally investigated that. May I give you maybe 10 sentences on what I have read recently about it. Mm -hmm. Would love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what we do know is that the nucleus, since you used that as your example, uh, it gets fused up on the day of neurulation. So it's ended the first month after fertilization of the embryo. Uh, that nucleus never sees the mother's uh, immune system after that. Once the person has a disc herniation and the nucleus comes through the annulus, the immune system of the body attacks that as a foreign body and sets up this massive inflammatory response. This we know. Mm. If you followed the literature on this in the last five years or so, the studies of then taking oral anti-inflammatories seems to suggest that this actually prolongs the time that the inflammation takes with macrophage activity and white blood cells, et cetera, to help digest some of the extruded nucleus. So the inflammation is there for a reason, to help digest and reduce the extruded material. So there's a, a you know, a little bit of a, uh, an interesting take on it. And that's about the extent of my knowledge and expertise. Maybe inflammation isn't something to just suppress in all cases that maybe in this case, maybe there's a cleanup process going on that right. could be leading toward that's what uh, they're diminished pain. That's what yeah. they're suggesting. Yeah. And I guess one of the difficulties is there, we can do a lot more with some of the things that you were talking about in the in the detailed assessment process of looking at mechanics to see you know how mechanical loading might be transmitted but it's i would assume a lot more difficult to identify something like you know is there you know enzyme leakage from the nucleus that might be doing this like the the way to to provoke that or to really pick it up might be more difficult well i can move back into my sphere of expertise now that you've gone that way mm -hmm. We would measure on cadaveric spines, uh, and these were mostly animals because we needed young discs that would herniate. Older discs don't. 
So human cadavers, it's very rare to get a nice, pristine, young uh, human. But on a, at least on the animal ones, uh, we learned techniques to mechanically vacuum in the extruded nucleus. So if I can permit me to get another model here, and uh, this model shows the, uh, the laminated collagen at the end of my finger. Can you see that little red mark? Uh, on the uh, uh, annulus. So if you were to look through this see-through vertebra, you can see all the red ingrowth of vascular tissue uh, along this posterior lateral route that I'm showing you with my finger. So this is a posterior lateral disc bulge through collagen delamination. So watch that red area, and I'm going to flex and squeeze the nucleus, and you see the delamination occurring and the nucleus pushed out posteriorly. In other words, it's a hydraulic effect. When you flex and squeeze, it directs the hydraulic effort posteriorly. Now we're going to be tall, and I'm going to squeeze, and you'll see the whole, let me pull that nerve root out of the way, the whole joint squeezes down, but notice nothing is directed through the delamination posteriorly. So the nucleus does not get directed posteriorly. Now, if you, what we then learned to do was if we put a traction load, and, and the manual clinicians will love this, let's put a traction load on the spine and then add a little bit of motion. We would, uh, track the nucleus as it is uh, progressing through the annulus and is now outside of the annulus, we could vacuum that back in. And you lay the patient prone, pull on their legs, about say five pounds per leg, it's not much, and then you do a windshield wiper action on the ankles. You're watching their pelvis just so you get a nice little rolly motion in the pelvis. And that was the fastest way to vacuum in. Uh, in other words, you're, you're reversing the hydraulics to vacuum in the disc bulge. I got to try it. It's fascinating. Let me just see if I can summarize. You showed us this model in a little bit of flexion, how the hydraulics actually pushed. Uh, things well, it's back. not a little bit. It's actually uh, a lot of flexion. A lot of flexion, yes. <laughs> it showed us a lot of flexion, how the hydraulics, you were saying, could push things backwards toward the spinal cord. When you had it in a more neutral position, there wasn't that pushing, even with compression. So then you're showing us some traction and how that, you're saying, vac could vacuum things back into the place where they're not as irritating. Well, so I, it's not only that it can, I've proven that it can. Okay, tell us about that. How? How's, well, how's as a, a study, the first author is Scannell. Uh, Scannell was my PhD student at the time. It's Joan Scannell and myself. And uh, do you know the McKenzie prone press? -ups? I was about to ask you about yeah. that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. So now we get into some more uh, interesting uh, controversy. Well, maybe maybe I should say something about that for listeners who may not be familiar. McKinsey exercises are commonly given to people with uh, diagnosed disc issues. They often involve backbending to a place where the client comfort and the, the patient is taught to use that backbending with different motion to uh, the putatively bring the nucleus forward and reduce irritation. And there is controversy around that. How did I do for a summary? 
Well, it's not bringing the disc forward. It's actually vacuuming in the nucleus. And okay. interestingly enough, when Robin McKenzie was alive, he and I would discuss this at great detail. Okay. And uh, he, he had never tested the mechanics and nor had the McKenzie Institute. We did the first uh, probing of these mechanisms to see if we could explain, was the hypothesis actually true? And there was this idea, oh, you would pump the nucleus back in. Well, actually, you can, but there was some riders on that. If the disc was flattened, it wouldn't work. In other words, the disc had to have 70% of its original disc height remaining or more. So it still mm -hmm. needed a fair amount of juiciness in the disc, so to speak. But if you uh, pull in traction... Uh, and then give that little wiggle I was talking about. That was the fastest way to vacuum in the disc bulge if it had 70% of its disc height remaining or, uh, or more. But here was the, here was the problem. Uh, doing prone press-ups over and over again, the disc and the joint has now lost stiffness. There's more load on the facet joints. And the problem was the patients who were told to do prone press-ups every day by their therapists, within a year or two, they now came back with highly irritated facet joints. So originally, they couldn't flex because of the disc bulge without triggering pain. Now they are extension intolerant because they've got sensitized facet joints. Mm -hmm. And as you know, a disc, if you stop bending forward, can settle down quite quickly. To wind down the pain sensitivity of a facet joint can take two or three or more months. It, it's quite a long wind down to uh, stop the irritation. So we were concerned about using prone press-ups to vacuum in the disc. Was there another way? We simply had the patients lay prone and breathe. You'll, you'll find this is kind of funny. Lay on your tummy Breathe in, and as you exhale, relax your low back. Take all the tension out. And that, as you exhale, brought back a very gentle extension to the back. Till and Whitney, it was just as effective at returning the um, nucleus in the animal study as the prone press-up without the trauma to the facet joints. Now you're going to love the next bit. I there love it already, but I want to hear the next bit. Yeah. There are some people who they need a little bit of help. There's a little bit of a stuck antalgic joint. So you asked me earlier, um, is there a, what did you call it now? Uh, Paradigm clash? Uh, that's it, a clash. Yeah. And my brain just sparkled after that because I don't see it at that you know that there will be some people with an antalgic joint, one joint that is splinted off now into flexion. So when they lay on their tummies and you're breathing that lordosis back into their spine to equilibrate the stress, that antalgic joint doesn't want to go. I don't have manual skills like you two. So then I bring in my manual guru and they just gently help it a tiny little bit. We're done. You're, yeah. That's that's great. And I bet some of our listeners can think of occasions when we lay people face down, have them breathe and relax and create antalgic conditions, conditions that are 
uh, relieving to a pain-induced issue or immobility or change in motion. That's I love this example. And a skilled I love this hand targeted to the right location matters. It matters if you work and probe up versus as a role for you. You you know this. I know. Or you probe the other way. The mechanical effect and the the efficacy changes. It's 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 finicky stuff. One of the things I'm working curious the spinous about process yeah. to the right, working the spinous process to the left. One way hurts like hell. The other way says, "Oh, I can and maybe that." Maybe it's similar to your story about or your example of uh, averages negating any differences across large populations. Maybe some of that applies to manual therapy or manual therapists as well. That ability to feel or or follow or deduce or test and refine what we do has a lot to do with the efficacy too, of course. I, I can I can prove that. I, I don't have to put the word maybe on that. I can prove it. So when we get into challenging patients and they're challenging because they've already been to five therapists and they were either had no effect or they were made worse. And then comes along a therapist who makes the difference. And there was a reason why they made the difference. Um, so the manual skill, the ability to feel, we, we talked about this at dinner. It makes a huge difference. And, uh, you know, I'm uh, hip replaced. Well, I, I broke my hip. And, uh, you know, I'd go to different meetings and there would be all the full spectrum of spine experts at some of the meetings I would go to. And invariably over dinner, someone would come up to me and say, oh, let me work on your hip. I, 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 I can really help you here. And more often than not, I was crippled afterwards. It was terrible. Oh. And, uh, and, and I, and I won't say the names, but some of these names we all know <laughs> and they <laughs> crippled me. And, and yet there would be someone else who would come in and it was subtle and it was targeted and you could see them probing and feeling the reaction. You know, I know I haven't worked with either of you two, but you know, there are some of the colleagues that they don't need to ask a patient if, if pain was caused by that, they can feel the muscles spark off with a little reaction. Sure. If, you, yeah. if you hit pain, you know, you don't need to ask. Even I, with my stone hands can feel that if I, if I'm present mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they were magic, they would take the pain out of my hip by very strategically knowing exactly with precision what to work on and, and release or relieve, and then what to leave alone. Don't go near it. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are the ones who were uh, magical and they could repeat it. Yeah. Again, Maybe there's a kinesthetic or nonverbal example of this uh, hypothesis test adjust cycle that we're describing in your assessment too. Maybe we do that with our hands. As well, yes. Maybe we're feeling and adjusting a hundred percent. But I, I think we can formalize it like that, and, and you, as a teacher, may want to formalize it into a teaching system. But if you go to a guru, that's what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what they do. Um, I have one more question that I want to get into, but I, but I can't leave this because this is on my mind. I, I just want to get some clarity here. When you talked about sort of vacuuming the disc back in, you know, a lot of the stuff that I have read about the biomechanics of discs speak of them as being more of like a, a colloidal substance that can take large amounts of pressure over a short period of time, but then gradually degenerate from moderate levels over long periods of time. But what you're saying sounds as if the disc actually can 
um, modulate its sort of uh, shape or whatever in a short period of time when these kinds of forces are applied to it. Is it so? Is that correct? Yeah, it is actually. Go back to the model. Remember, I showed you as you deviate it and create a hydraulic stress and bending it at the same time, you forced some of the nucleus to go through the delaminations in the collagen fibers. Yeah. Uh, if you can vac them, vacuum them in and then avoid that posture, it gristles up in that yeah. new formation. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and people will then ask me, well, how long does gristling take? Right. Um, some people are looking at 10 years. Mm -hmm. And others, it's much more rapid. My uh, One of my colleagues at the university, Jet Professor Jack Callahan, has been studying the variety of collagen in people's discs, type one and type two, and learning with a bit more precision on which ones delaminate faster with motion. Oh, which interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. So again, you know, we get back to this variety of response. There's a reason for it. And if they're savvy enough to figure out the reasons, they know how to test it. I do not know anything about type, uh, type differentials of collagen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is what the young superstars are doing these days. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I want to get back one uh, question to you that kind of goes back to the, the clinical case that you were talking about at the very beginning with the gentleman with the neck pain. And this is something I get asked all the time, and I would like to just hear you sort of weigh in on a little bit. Uh, do you have any sort of... Um, you know, clinical clinical pearls or ideas of things that you could share that will help um, clinicians in distinguishing between radiculopathies, so nerve root uh, problems versus a peripheral neuropathy that's causing similar symptoms, let's say like down in a lower extremity from back pain, you know, making that distinction between a nerve root issue and something that's a peripheral neuropathy or, you know, compression or damage farther along the length of that nerve. Right. Um, well, we have a lot of tests. Uh, I can't give you one. Usually it's the interpretation of the results of uh, several. Mm -hmm. But if you can uh, say you're doing a straight leg raise test, okay, it's a general sciatic nerve root tensioning test. Uh, play with the posture of the neck. In other words, pull the nerve roots from the other end. So now you've got more of a tension. Does that make uh, a difference. If it does, I'm going to be looking at something more in the lumbar region than something further uh, downstream, uh, as an example. If during the leg raise test, you bring the foot more medially over the other leg, uh, that puts more tension, preferably on the L5 uh, root versus uh, a fourth, uh, as an example. Um, I might differentiate uh, some of the uh, femoral root tests from the sciatic. Um, let's say you're thinking of something a bit more like a vascular claudication, something further along. Uh, I might have the person stand in a swimming pool up to their mid thighs, and then we repeat the offending test and they'll say, oh, my symptoms have gone away. Bingo. It was the hydrostatic compression of the water, which if you go down about four feet, uh, I'll use American dimensions here and down four feet over a meter for the rest of the world. <laughs> now you've equilibrated out uh, blood pressure, 120 over 80. So if it's a vascular claudication uh, 
and, and it goes away with the hydrostatic pressure, you're starting to get closer. Now play with the nerve root at that water depth. Oh, mm-hmm. darn, it's it's there. So it's a nerve thing. Yeah. Or, you know, we, we just keep working at it. Remember mm-hmm. I said earlier, if you can't find it, you've missed something. Don't yeah. give up. Keep yeah. working at this darn thing until uh, you can understand it. Put a tourniquet on mm-hmm. the thigh and uh, tighten it up. Did that change the symptoms? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if immediately it makes it worse, I'd be thinking something more distal. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and things uh, uh, create clusters. That won't be the only system. Uh, yeah. Pardon me. There will be a cluster around that. Or, you know, maybe they've got lipomatosis. Or maybe there's a, a nasty little nerve cyst that is hanging up the nerve that no one has seen yet. But the tests, maybe you do a sitting slump test and extend the knee and slouch down from above, no symptom. Then the person goes and drives a car and they say, this drives me crazy, I can't stand the pain. What's the difference? They extended the knee. So there was something that you migrated the nerve roots caudally when they're driving a car that isn't seen in a slump test because the slump test pulls the cyst from either side if it's a lumbar cyst. And you say, you know, I know there's something hanging up that lumbar nerve root. Let me go back to the MRs. Oh, shoot. They they, they didn't go lateral or down for enough. Order another set and say, I want to follow that right down to the uh, hip joint. Bingo. There's the nerve cyst. Mm-hmm. You know, you knew it was there. The assessment was showing you that there was something there. <laughs> Odd thing. Uh, these things pop into your head as you're talking. I I uh, had a patient and then everyone previous to me were given the x-rays, old school x-rays. And then uh, I looked at the x-rays and I thought I had blurry vision. I looked at it again and again. They had, uh, I forget how many extra segments, something like eight extra segments on their tail. The t- tail curled around their anus, around their vagina, all the way around their bladder. Uh, you know, the poor kid had a tail, an wow. internal tail. Wow. And, and it was all, it was there for everyone to see, but they they, they weren't thinking that way. So what mm-hmm. they saw, they didn't even register. Yeah. I got to say, that's one of the things I get out of every conversation I have with you are these amazing stories and examples of you doing this test, uh, hypothesize, adjust cycle, but also just the out of the box nature of it, your creativity and your just willingness to try stuff, like tourniquet on someone's leg, for example, see if that changes it. So I always get, I always gain a lot, both in that detail level, but also in the inspiration level from my talks with you. You, you know, tell people ask me a lot about that, particularly whenever we have a patient here, I always invite the clinicians, please bring mm-hmm. your doctors. Yeah. And they'll say, you've never seen anything like this before. Where did you learn it? And I said, well, I didn't, I, I'm not a graduate of a medical school. This is just engineering, troubleshooting 101. Well, we could go on for a while, but do you want to share on the way out? Do you want to share with us any up? coming research or projects that you're excited about and how they, especially how they might affect the world Whitney and I are in the manual therapy world. (laughs) Oh, you're not going to like this answer. (laughs) I'm ready. Thanks for the warning. I'm ready. Well, when I was a professor producing new data and new results, uh, 
it used to irritate me a little bit listening to people say, oh, this is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do. la di da di da And then I always thought I never by policy mentioned anything until I had the data in my hand. I was done and I was willing to stand by it. So that's still a little bit uh, part of me. Um, I'm involved in a few projects around the world, uh, some really offbeat ones that I'm very excited about. But I will tell you when the data is in and I can give you something that I can stand behind. Well, there's the automatic trigger for a new uh, podcast episode for when that <laughs> okay, comes out. Great. Right, so, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, I, you're right. I don't, I'm not crazy about that answer, but I completely understand it and accept it. Thank you for mm-hmm. that. All right. Uh, how could people find out more about uh, your work? We mentioned your book, Back Mechanic, which again, I want to recommend. Any other? Right. Any other... Well, we, we have the books. If they go to our website, which is BackFit Pro, you enter the website through one of two portals. If you're a clinician, you enter through the clinician's portal, and then it shows some of the books and materials that we have to enhance understanding of how the back works, how to assess it, and these sorts of things. There's a some course material on there, etc. If you're a patient suffering, you enter through the back pained persons portal, and it's the same thing. There's a different set of resources. And then we have a list of clinicians that have studied our material, they've taken our courses, they've been through our exams, uh, and we can vouch somewhat for their competency. And uh, we we list them there regionally, and people could find a clinician close to them who uh, follows a little bit of the way that we would recommend. We'll get all that into our show notes. Yeah, great. I want to personally thank you again for the time. It's very generous of you. And I, like I said, I learned so much talking to you. I'm so glad you're willing to share that with all of us. Yeah. My, my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. It's just, uh, it is absolutely remarkable the things that you have been able to compile and put together for clinicians that, um, you know, obviously are helping so many people in a in a way that the rest of the healthcare system just isn't quite doing yet. So let's keep dragging them in that direction, hopefully. Okay, Whitney and Till, um, I gained two new friends that night in Montreal, and I thank you very much for that, and thank you for all your support, and you two keep doing the fabulous service that uh, you both do. I uh, saw the respect that you two garner from the uh, profession, from all of the delegates in uh, Montreal. So uh, uh, all kudos back to you two. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks much. We're going to read our rollout here, our ending sponsor. The Thinking Practitioner Podcast is supported by ABMP Associated Body Work and Massage Professionals. ABMP membership gives professional practitioners like you a package including individual liability insurance, free continuing education and quick reference apps, online scheduling and payments with Pocket Suite, and much more. And ABMP CE courses, their podcast, and the Massage and Bodywork magazine always feature expert voices and new perspectives in the profession, including Till and myself. And thinking practitioner listeners can save on joining ABMP at abmp.com forward slash thinking. So thank you again to all of our listeners for hanging out with us, for communicating with us. And we do also thank all of our sponsors. You can stop by our sites for the video, show notes, transcripts, and any extras 
You can find that over on my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com and Till, where can people find that for you? Advanced-trainings.com. We'll put, again, links to Dr. McGill's site in there as well. Uh, if you have comments, questions, or things you want to hear us talk about, just record a short voice memo on your phone and email it to us. Or you could email us your regular email at info at the thinking practitioner or look for us on social media. I am Whitney Lowe. Actually, no, I read that wrong. I am Till Luca. Who are you, Whitney? Yeah, I'll be Till today. That's okay. <laughs> and I'll be Whitney Lowe. So you can rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen. So please do share the word, tell a friend. And thank you again so much for joining us, Dr. McGill. We had a wonderful time here with you today. Me too. Thanks, gentlemen. All right. All right.